This is the final word, story time with Adam Collins. And again, joining me is the great Daniel Norcross in his sitting room in Tooting, at least for the first part of this show. This will be a story time recorded in two parts, but you don't need to know that. Uh, Daniel, of course, is stepping in for Jeff this week, and I can inform you it is the 85th time we've made a story time. I looked back uh, in the archives. We started making story time as its own entity this time two years ago. We haven't made one every single week due to the sort of logistical concerns Ooh. and considerations along the way, but we started doing it at the same time that you and I started making Call in the Shots. It was then, was it? Because I remember doing Nerd Pledge. Yes. I did Nerd Pledge in, I think, 2019, The Ashes, just before Jeff flew back to Australia we did, and it, we did it in that Airbnb somewhere in, in North London. That's we? right. We did a couple together. You, you came in to do what turned out to be a Nerd Pledge quiz app in a, well, I wouldn't call it a pub, but a restaurant in King's Cross. That's right. We, yeah. we missed the entirety of Owen Morgan's ostentatious century against Afghanistan when he hit... 12 sixes, probably more than that. I think it was the most sixes ever hit in a one-day international. And we missed all of it because we were recording what wasn't then known as story time. But, yeah, when Calling the Shots started, that's when we thought we'd better start making a show to go in the other week. So we were making – we were dropping out story time every other week and then yeah. – So you've yeah. done so you've done 850 stories – or, sorry, 840 before today. I hadn't considered that, but, yeah, we'd be You're right running out there. of numbers. We, we'd be right up there. You'd, 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 you'd think that, wouldn't you? I, I've, I've said to Jeff occasionally there might reach a point when it's just too hard. But it might be like when you sometimes hear, well, you remember like there used to be a bit of a thing that would do the rounds on the internet that we will run out of new songs because the yeah. there's only so many different ways that notes can be put together and melodies can come together. Yeah. I think it's the same for Nerd Pledge in that I don't think we'll ever completely run out of stories to tell about the great game of cricket, as Michael Clark would say. So um, we get the chance to tell about 10 more today and I can't bloody wait. Well, I can't wait. I've got... A, I've got- a couple of corkers. I've got one. I got one. I'm really looking forward to because I checked with you first to see if the story had been told before, and you assured me that it hadn't. And I think if it hasn't, your listeners need to know about it. Yeah, and there's one from me too that comes right at the end of the show. Which, if I was planning this again, it might be off the top, but it's worth holding on for the end because I reckon we're going to come home with a wet sail on story time this week. <laughs> How this works, if you're new to the final word, maybe you've happened upon this because Daniel's tweeted it out, and you're like, "What's this all about?" Well, story time is where we tell stories from cricket, and the way we do it is using the numbers of the game, and the the numbers we choose are based on the pledges that are sent through by our patrons. So, for example. If you send in a number of 213, which is the, the final word, special number, we, this is how it all started, really. We would tell you the story of the 1999 World Cup semi-final tie, for example. And so it goes. And uh, many people have, have been part of our journey across that two or three years that we've had the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the final word. The game is called Nerd Pledge. Often people will send clues through. Sometimes they won't. Uh, today we have a whole series of numbers that don't have clues, which give us complete free reign, which is why I'm pretty sure it's going to be an interesting show. Yeah, actually I'm delighted that there aren't clues because some of the clues that are sent through are so Byzantine and abstruse that it sends me <laughs> down paths that completely mess with my brain. The, the blank slate is a place I'm happy with. Yeah. A huge green sward of hope into which I can put the most um, ludicrous suggestions. And, I, and I've got a couple. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you do. Uh, we're going to start with Josh Golby, who sent through 451 AUD. That's me. 
451 is actually a number that we briefly touched on on the weekly show when considering uh, Mike Dunn's pledge of 244. I said that 451 was the partnership between Bradman and Ponsford to end the 1934 Ashes at your home ground, a couple of miles away from where we're recording at the Oval. But as I said then and will again now, there's no way in the world we're revisiting that test match for the umpteenth time. So we'll, we'll just leave that there. But yes, 451 is still... And may for always be uh, the biggest partnership ever for Australia in a test match. It was nearly beaten by Voges and Marsh, who put on 449 at Hobart in 2015, I think it was. Oh, that's a spoiler alert for later on. Oh, is it though? Is it just? We love it when these things happen, Daniel. Jeff and I love it when our numbers run into each other. Uh, But no, it's not that. Well, that's at least not what I'm going to talk about. Uh, Speaking of Australian records, 452 is the highest score an Australian has made in first class cricket. Of course, that's what Bradman made unbeaten in 2930 for New South Wales against Queensland at the SCG. But it doesn't clash, so we won't go there either. 451 is what Australia made at Ranchi in 2017. Five years, not quite to the day, but about a week ago, I was receiving those those Facebook memories that you get to recognise posts from the same date. The reason I had a post up about Australia's 451 is, of course, because that's when Glenn Maxwell made his one and only, hopefully so far, at Test Century. Uh, he made 104. That came up when we were in Lahore a couple of weeks ago where Pete and I, uh, Pete Lawler and I were in, in the back of a car as we so often were together going back and forth from hotel to venue during the test series and I wrote a piece that night which was about Maxwell's 100 to the lyrics of the song Total Control by the Motels and the point I was trying to make was that Maxwell showed total control hitting, I think his first boundary was, was, was from his 56th delivery and his second boundary was from his 90th delivery and, 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 and showing that Maxwell had shown that complete control and was ready to be a permanent fixture in the test team. Alas, that, that wasn't you to be. You still hold out hope though, don't you? I do, I do. Yeah. Where there's time, there is hope. He was actually married a, a couple of weeks ago in a, in a big Hindu uh, ceremony, which is why he wasn't eligible to to play in Pakistan because he had that wedding inked in and effectively made himself unavailable. Not unreasonably given Maxwell's schedule that you had to find somewhere to get married. I mean, it's kind of nowhere as a white ball pro when you can kind of pick a, a date in the calendar. But congratulations to him. Uh, but instead of all of that, I'm going to take you to a player that's not quite of your youth, Daniel, but I'm tipping you'll know a little bit about this cricketer. It's almost dusty old bastard energy, but I don't like using that phrase when it's someone that's too recent and this player is a little bit later than that. It's the man who wore cap number 451 for England, a man by the name of John Jameson of Warwickshire. Yes, a hard-hitting opening batter. A big, hard-hitting opening batter. He did, the very end of his career, butted up against the start of my consciousness. Right, okay. Well, you'll enjoy this, hopefully. As I say, he's from Warwickshire. He, he, He gave the game so much over such a long stretch of time that I just thought his story is one that deserves to be told. And and there's a quirk in there as well that's got um, strong nerd pledge energy. So, as you say, he was a bulky opener who loved to give it a whack. He was probably before his time. He strikes me as the kind of player who would have made plenty of money on that aforementioned white ball circuit that I was referring to a moment ago. he would. And he got a go in 1971 for England in a test match against India to begin with. And where the quirk is here is that despite being an opening batter, in three of his first four test innings, he was run out. Oh, yes. This is ringing a bell now. And he remains the only 
England Test cricketer to ever be run out in both innings of a match. Yes, because I think this came up when, yeah, because I, I think this came up on commentary because somebody had been run out in the first innings and was really close to being run out in the second in a match <laughs> I was covering. I can't remember precisely which one it was. And I think Andy Zaltzman found that out for us when that the question right. was posed. <laughs> yeah. So more his format and probably in keeping with his running between wickets based on what we know. He did get a run for England in the 1975 World Cup, but it didn't really work out for him. And that was the end of his international career. But he really cracked on in a number of ways post-England. In 1974 against Gloucestershire, he put on an unbeaten partnership of 465 with Rowan Canai, which remains the, the biggest partnership in the history of the county championship for the second wicket. And it's a three-day game, don't forget. So yes. that, that'll have happened quickly because in those days you needed to get on with it if you were going to bowl a side out twice. Yes, absolutely. Uh, he, he was born in Mumbai or Bombay, as it was then, and he loved South Asia, and in turn, South Asia loved him. Mentioned his size, big dude, mm. big generous spirit by all reports, and he spent a lot of time over there, especially in Bangladesh. He was instrumental in getting, not Bangladesh cricket off the ground, but giving it a real surge in the 1980s, including coaching Bangladesh. He was one of the, the first national coaches of the team through that era. Um, alongside that, also in the 1980s back home, he was a first-class umpire for a number of seasons, mm -hmm. and he was also the official ECB pitch inspector. I didn't even know that I was a thing. No, I didn't know that. Like, I've never heard of that before. It's the sort of thing we, 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 we sort of joke around when we see pitches in India and, you know, offhandedly and say, well, you know, the BCCI, you know, the, the, the pitch inspector or words to that effect might have had a hand in that in ensuring, you know, said pitch was only in the last two and a half days or something like that. But, yes, the ECB had some version of this uh, in the 1980s and, and that was our man John Jameson. Later on... He was seen as something as, a, as an expert in the laws of the game, especially by the ICC. So when there was the Daryl Hare case in 2007, and Daniel, you'll fill in the gaps here, but when Pakistan walked off the field at yes, the Dar Oval... Daryl Hare effectively accused the Pakistanis in Zamal Haq and his team of tampering with the ball. Um, they refused to come out after tea. And so they then began... This was on the fourth day, I think. Yep. And actually, Pakistan were in a pretty decent position in that game mm. at the time. And so there was then the kerfuffle about trying to get them to come out and play, but uh, they felt understandably deeply dishonoured by the suggestion that, uh, that they'd been tampering. And don't forget that this was in a, in, in a kind of atmosphere in which England played Pakistan pretty rancorously, actually, over the last 20-odd yeah. years, particularly so, really, in the last 20-odd years. I mean, Ian Botham had been fairly uncomplimentary about Pakistan, saying it was somewhere he wouldn't send his mother-in-law. And then there had been issues with umpiring. But way back in the in the early 80s, I think there was a, a big kerfuffle when, I forget, was it Salim Yusuf had, had claimed a catch off Botham, which bounced well in front of him. And then he'd sort of gone after him with a bat. And uh, David Constant had been giving decisions in England's favour. There, there was very, very bad blood. And it had continued through the court case, of course, involving Imran Khan and um, and Ian Botham, which had happened, I mean, it was before then, but it was that was the backdrop to it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and this was, you know, before the, the 2010 snafu over the no ball, of course. 
So, and there was those two tours in 1988 where there was the Gatting yeah, incident, and then later in the year when, Rana, when, yeah. when Border tried to take the team home. Daniel Brady wrote a great piece about this when uh, we were in Karachi. He wasn't on the tour, but he wrote about it how after one test match in 1988, not even end of the test, the Australian team voted to go home because yes. they thought the Pakistani umpires were cheating. And then the team manager, who was Colega, who in a previous life was the umpire who, who no-balled Ian Meckiff out of Test cricket, by this stage he was the Australian team manager and he just straight up called them cheats. It was, uh, you know, so as you say, quite a bit of bad blood. Anyway, in relation to Jameson, the ICC saw him as such an expert on these matters, he was the expert witness called on the Daryl Hare case. Oh. So all the way through deep into his old age, uh, he's a well, kindly looking man as well. You got a picture of him up there. He was, he was a really, he was, he was, as you say, large. Yes, larger, but he, but he was sort of Rubicon cheeks. He was one of these sort of classic rustic kind of county guys, and he and he played with a, a rustic charm as well. And he stayed involved in the county game. He coached Sussex at one point. He was the. MCC cricket secretary Ooh. and quite appropriately was given an MBE uh, to services for cricket in, in 2010. So so a lifetime of, of cricket, not just uh, those handful of test matches he played as the 451st uh, member of the England men's test team. And he's still going strong. He turned 80 last June. A great cricketing life, John Alexander Jameson. And he struck me when preparing this, he might be the sort of guy we get on the final word at some stage. Because he, yeah. it sounds like he's done so many things along the way that he would have a story or two to tell us. He's one of these guys who's steeped in cricket, isn't he? And you see them. I mean, you're about to head back onto the tours in the county game, and that sometimes you you may not always be aware of exactly who that person is. I found, you know, and I was thinking this guy looks familiar, and it turns out it's Richard Ellison, who played in the yes. 1985 series. Uh, famously, it was his big series when he took those wickets, and he's there. Like, is he assessing umpires or something? He's there right. gathering the information and each ball goes in. And they sit in this tiny little room you know, like in Chelmsford. You know, the Chelmsford box is really small. And they've got this tiny little room, the sun baking into them, really uncomfortable. And you think, this guy was on the front page of the newspapers in England back in 1985. And now he's just very studiously and meticulously recording every ball and reporting back, you know, that the umpires are doing their jobs properly, and you know, like James Whittaker, and they're all they're well, all yeah, over county cricket. Yeah, Tim Robinson, guys. who's still Tim Robinson, yeah, he got an international last year. Yeah. Speaking of that eighty-five series, mm. yeah, you're right. They there are like John Carr, who who does the uh, yeah. I don't know his exact title at the ECB, but he led the the batting averages in county cricket in nineteen ninety four ahead of Brian Lara due to this incredible run of not outs yeah. through the season for Middlesex. So, yes, it is nice that that players that may not receive the adulation and be household names, but still um, devote a life to the game. A beautiful tale, Colo, but uh, it's my turn now. And um, this is number <laughs> 205 from Sam Littlejohn. And I've got free reign. I can go anywhere I want. Yep, you do. As I understand it. And look, there's a lot of double centurions. There's a lot of 205s. Too many, really, to go through. Uh, there's a couple of interesting cap numbers. I think we've got someone who might almost qualify as a dusty old bastard. <laughs> one Jack Wilson, who made his debut in 1956 for Australia. Played just the one match. Yeah. Uh, got a duck. Took one for 64. He's, I mean, I think he's, feels, he's sort of... I mean, usually, usually the DOBs tend to be in that cap number range, but for England, but uh, that... 
205 is an Australian that played in the mid-50s and played one test. If you wanted to go down that way, you'd be welcome to, but it feels like you've got something better. Well, I have. And, you know, I alighted for, for a brief time on England's 205 cap number because he's a man who has been mentioned many times on Storytime, the great Andy Sandham. Oh, yes. I, I met him once. I mean, yeah, I am that old. Wow. He used to go to the Oval quite a bit. And he was exceptionally old when I met him and he was in a huge great coat regardless of the weather if it was 80 degrees or 50 degrees and he was just exotic beyond belief to the sort of six seven year old Norcross I can tell you because because he got a triple century and held, held the world record briefly but I thought you know Andy Sandham he's been around a fair bit on story time I'm not going to take you down that path okay I thought 205 might be more fertile if I looked at 2005 20th of may very good we've done this before i like it when we um when we when we try and find a different way to interpret the numbers so i'm all in on this let's go a bit datey and you know a couple of things stand out the 20th of may there are two stellar wicket keepers whose birthday is the 20th of may Derek murray and uh, sarah taylor there's also i think a story in here that i was very tempted to tell which is the story of Yorkshire's lowest ever first-class score. They were bowled out for 23 at Middlesbrough on the 20th of May, 1965. <laughs> okay. They collapsed. They collapsed from seven without loss to 13 for eight. And this was a side that had the great Jeffrey Boycott in it, Ray Illingworth, uh, Brian Close, Fred Truman. And I thought long and hard about going there, but my eye alighted to a story that I... I believe you haven't yet heard on story time and it is an absolute corker that's quite the journalist in you daniel it's not often that we describe you as a journalist but i remember when i worked in in politics in canberra it was always well this is the story i'm writing unless you've got a better one and it sounds like yeah you know, i would have been very happy to have heard about yorkshire's lowest first class total or i mean even if you had have gone back to Sandham and had a fresh spin on the 325 i was only writing about that test match this morning when i'm preparing for uh, well, a, a game that by the time you listen to this will be uh, well underway. But uh, Josh DeCarries, his, his great-grandfather, Frank DeCarries, played uh, in that test match with Andy Sandham in 1930. It was his third and final test match for the West Indies. Wow. That is a family that is steeped in cricket, isn't it? I mean, isn't that's uh, there's, there's been a lot of steeping, <laughs> steeping in cricket in this episode. Wow. that's Look, and, and that is a story I could have gone down. But... What I'm going to tell you the story of is a match that took place on the 20th of May, 1911. It took place at Hove between Sussex and Nottinghamshire. Mm-hmm. And it is, to all intents and purposes, on the face of it, at least to start with, a pretty ordinary game of cricket. So Nottinghamshire, they get bowled out for 238 in 80 overs. There's nothing much to report there. The great George Gunn scored 90 you may be, well be aware of him. And uh, they had an opener in those days called Ironmonger, not to be confused with the great Ironmonger. Uh, I, I saw that name and thought, hang on a minute, did, was, did they have overseas pros at Nottinghamshire <laughs> in 1911? Well, he was probably, no, diff- uh, he was probably about, well, he, it, well, well, dainty Ironmonger was, what, 45 or something when playing in the early 30s. So in theory, had he been in England at the time, he would have been old enough to have been playing professional cricket. Well, indeed, but... I don't think it, but it's not him, unless it's a very poor spelling. So now let me take you back to the, the circumstances. Okay. So uh, Nottinghamshire 
have been bowled out for a fairly modest 238. Uh, Sussex have replied very strongly. They get 414. They're 176 runs ahead. And the hero of our story is a man called Ted Allitson, who's playing for Nottinghamshire. And this is Jermaine, because he was a kind of all-rounder, actually had better numbers with the ball in his illustrious career than he had with the bat but he's remembered for a batting feat that took place in this match and in this match he injured his wrist and could only bowl the one over and so he comes in with the score 185 for seven they're in all sorts of trouble they've managed to avoid the innings defeat but having conceded a first innings lead of 176 they're basically doomed yep. you agree it's like it's got headingly vibes yep ah absolutely stuffed so you know knowing that it's not too great a situation and bearing in mind that Allison is renowned to be a blocker in those days not a biffer he decides he's going to have a little bit of fun so he plays relatively briskly till lunch and he's unbeaten on 47 in 50 minutes at lunch which is decent going and uh, he goes back to the, the changing room and he has a significant conversation with his captain because just before lunch they lose two more wickets Right? So they're in trouble. They're 260 for nine. They're 84 ahead. They've, they've got on a little bit of runs with, with Allison's 47 and 50. But really, you know, there's too much time left in the game. They're nine down. There's a man who's renowned to be a blocker and the number 11 who is, by all accounts, a bit of a rabbit at the other end. A guy called Riley. And uh, so the captain says, I don't think it matters what you do now, Ted. And Allison is reputed to have replied with the words then I'm not half going to give that Killick some stick. Killick being Sussex's major bowler, the guy who took most of the wickets in the first inning. So now I'm afraid I've got to take you through this somewhat sequentially because one of the most famous innings of all time is about to unfold. An innings so amazing that John Arlott wrote an entire book about it. I kid you not. Blimey. Okay. So Killick begins first over after lunch, right? Allerton blocks the first ball, hits the next two for boundaries. He's now taken his 50. He gets a single. Riley holds out. And so Allison has strike next over. Allison's now on 56. Nottinghamshire, 270 for nine. So Riley manages a single off first ball the over. Allison follows this with two, four, two, dot. Nothing too remarkable. Then takes a single off the last ball. He's now on 65. So we're two overs in after lunch, yeah? Without taking any risk, this last pair's now... They've got 20 in two overs, okay? It's all sounding okay, right? Okay. Killick stays on. Allison sends one out of the ground. He blocks the next. He hits four, two, four, and finishes the over with another six. Killick concedes 22 in that over. Allison's now on 87. Nottinghamshire 302 for nine. So, next over. Riley manages to get a three, gets Allison back on strike, at which point... He hits, uh, he hits two sixes. 58 have been scored in four overs since lunch. Next over, 4-4.21 four, four, by Allitson. Next over, 4-6.43 by Allitson. All the time, Riley is basically playing one ball. This is textbook cricket. They've now scored 86 runs in six overs since lunch. Then, a world record takes place. The next over, and this is Killick bowling, right? This is Sussex's main bowler. He gets hit for 34, including 
two no balls, which didn't go on his analysis. So nowadays that would be 36. <laughs> he gets hit for 34 runs in the over, right? Unbelievable. 120 runs have been scored off just seven overs since lunch. 110 of them, 115 of them, I beg your pardon, by Ted Allitson. He's going to go on to score 189. He's caught on the boundary and apparently the spectators are convinced that the catch was taken by the boundary fielder with his foot on the rope. Don so Topley it shouldn't style. have counted. Don Topley style. It should have been six. Anyway, he's sawn off for 189. Last wicket partnership of 152. Just to give you the raw numbers, 47 in 50 minutes before lunch. Mm-hmm. 142 in 40 minutes after lunch. Bloody hell. Oh, bloody hell. When you bear in mind that the fastest first-class 100 recorded way up till the present day was Percy Fender's 35-minute mark for 100 runs. Allitson has scored 140 in 40 minutes at one point. Five balls were lost, hit out the ground, (laughs) right? Take an average of two, three minutes to find the ball. He's actually hit 140 in about 25 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, this was at, and just to go back, this was at Trent Bridge. This is at Hove. Oh, sorry. This, Hove. Is, at Hove. Hove. this is at Hove in 1911. In the end, Sussex have to hold out for a draw uh, because the lead is now about 238. They end up 215 for eight. Absolutely thrilling match. To cap it all, it's Ted Allitson's only first-class 100. <laughs> only first class 100 he scored he played 119 matches and bear in mind he's basically a batter who bowled he had a batting average of (laughs) 18.59 113 50s and in amidst all that is an innings of 189 in 90 minutes in total the greatest 10th wicket partnership ever described as the greatest innings ever seen by um well by by apparently anybody who was there <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple of little beautiful things in here so he had a two pound three ounce bat right john arlett got to sort of commune with it sleep with it rub it against his body at various points bob ralph who was a sussex player said poor tim Killick was frightened to bowl at Ted, not because he minded punishment, but he was afraid he'd drive one back at him. George Gunn told Arlett years later that Ted sent his drive skimming. You could hear them hum. He drove several at the Ralph Brothers. <laughs> at the Ralph Brothers, I like that. He said he didn't like the Ralph Brothers. And the ball fizzed through them as if they were ghosts. I have never seen another innings like it. It was not a case of it being hard to set a field to him, but one of those drives would have smashed a man's hand if he'd tried to stop it. The ball had gone on to smash the pavilion window and broke the bar clock. Oh, we are talking one of the great experiences of all time. I, I'm trying uh, to think anybody of this like a modern, there must be like a modern equivalent of a, of a player, not quite to that extreme, but a player who's averaged 20-odd but had one day like that when it's all just clicked. I'm thinking it's a little bit boom-boom Shahid Afridi's first yeah. one-day 100 as a 16-year-old in, I don't know, 30 nine balls or something like that. It, it, but, of course, Afridi went on to, to, to play those types of innings fairly routinely. But to just do it once and to do it in the circumstances where 
you're stuffed and you've said to the captain, maybe, again, we see this a lot, don't we? When you're liberated uh, from the result proper and you feel as though you're stuffed regardless, you, you can play. Um, you, you can find something that isn't ordinarily there when, you, when your inhibitions have been relieved or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I played with a guy called Jonathan Wall who averaged about 12 for our team and then there was one day against Oxshot Village and uh, I remember it clearly because I was at the other end. It was a very good deck. I got 50-odd. But he smashed his one and only 100. I think it was his one and only score above 50 for our <laughs> team. And he did it in about 50 balls. And he just planted the foot and the ball went flying. And it was just like he was blessed that day. It was as if the gods of cricket... It was, it was as if Scott Bakula from oh, Quantum Leap oh, had Daniel. jumped into his body oh. and just transformed him you know i was thinking was a lot i was thinking things. a lot about dr samuel becker a couple of weeks ago in in lahore uh when playing pool against tom decent our colleague from the herald and the age oh yeah um, who's a particularly good pool player like he's he's you know his dream is to be like a snooker journalist right like this is his thing even though he's a very accomplished cricketer and an excellent cricket writer but snooker is what really gets him going. And thus, when you get him around the pool table, and we had a pool table at Lahore, and I kept going back to that wonderful episode of Quantum Leap where Sam uh, inhabits the body of a, of a, of a, of a, it's a snooker player. I was going to say pool player. I think it was a snooker player. And in order to leap, in order to complete his mission, he needed to win this high-stakes game. And Al with the hologram was able to point on exactly where the cue ball he needed to hit each oh. ball exactly how hard he needed to hit it on the ball he was playing towards. And so, of course, he did, because that's exactly what Sam Beckett did. In fact, I think there was a song in that episode as well that, that Scott Bakula wrote, and they just sort of performed it impromptu on the piano. It was that kind of show. And they're making a comeback of Quantum Leap, by the way. There's talk oh, of them. Oh, brilliant. But I don't think Bakula's in it. Of course, the late Dean Stockwell, who passed away last year, Al, can't be in it by virtue of the fact that he's now dead. Mm. But, um, yes, I, I think there's kind of a, a next-generation Quantum Leap thing uh, a quarter of a century later. More than that. I look forward to that. Sam uh, Littlejohn. Sorry, no, please continue. Finish a, very, a very, very brief codicil. So, so famous was this innings, by the way, that the Duke of Portland marked his performance with an inscribed gold watch and chain because he was brought up on the Duke of Portland's estate. So he was like a kind of vassal of the Duke of Portland. And five days after, so he was in a rich, he had a rich vein of form that lasted for about two weeks. So it wasn't just the one day. He got 60 in 30 minutes, just released from being a blocker by his mm. experience. He got 60 in 30 minutes against Gloucestershire was then picked for a test trial at Bramall Lane. Not the best place for a, a hard-hitting batter to play, Bramall Lane. Pretty tough wicket there. He got 15 and 8, and that was basically it. He was never considered again, and he retired. But what a story, what a fighter, what a man. If you go and look him up, Ted Alletson, A-L-L-E-T-S-O-N, there's a wonderful picture of him sitting in an armchair, nestling the bat that scored those 189 runs. And that happened on the 20th of May, 2005, 1911. Gorgeous, Daniel. Thank you, Father Ted. Thank you, Sam Littlejohn, for giving Daniel the chance to do that without the impediment of a clue. Beautiful work. Next is me. I, I realise, Daniel, that we've been talking for about half an hour and done two answers, so it could be a very long story time, but that's oh, okay. Yes. That's okay. Adam Tunney is next uh, with 464. Again, a free hit. This was in AUD, and I note that we just had capped 464. That, that was Mitch Swepson a couple of weeks ago at Karachi, so I doubt it's going to relate to Mitch because uh, this pledge would have come in before he had been given his baggy green. And I hope they persist with Swepson in Sri Lanka. I mean, 
the easy thing to do would be to churn through the second spinner as they've done so many times before. He only took one wicket in two, or sorry, it was two wickets in two test matches. One of them was, was quite a good wicket too, but but yes, uh, I've booked my tickets to Gaul uh, since we last spoke, Daniel, so um, I'll oh, be heading yeah. over there for that very brief test series in June. So starting with AUD and, and assuming it's an Australian point of reference I doubt it'll be Phil Edmonds who um, wore cap 464 for England 51 times across his career I note with wickets that no one's taken 464 but I'll tell you what Ashwin will be there soon he's on 442 he's moved from let's say 370 to 442 about as quickly as anybody ever has uh, through that stage of their career and that's acknowledging that he missed how many tests in England last year he missed all well, of them all but one wasn't it yeah, did he Was even that, uh... play I've got a feeling play? he didn't even play. They just stuck with Jadeja. Yeah, I think you're right. And they went yeah. with plan A, which was to, to, to lengthen their batting lineup, despite the fact that Ashwin has made test hundreds at six. He's seen as... That uh, was like kind of the the reverse of what they did the last time when they refused to pick Jadeja exactly until right, the end. Exactly right, until the end. And he made and then realised what a mistake they'd made. Yes, yeah. yes. I looked at some averages as well. So Arthur Morris averaged 46 point four uh, but not quite he, he actually averaged 46.49 which means we rounded up to um, 46.5 i'm sure i've told you daniel that i was very cross recently when learning that jeff thompson's bowling average wasn't 28.00 like i always thought it was i worked out that it's actually when going through a nerd pledge answer 28.01 and i'm like hang oh. on a minute everywhere forever Crick Info, Wisdom, you name it, it's average listed, 28.00, but it's not. You round up the five, it's actually 28.005, you round up the five to the one and thus. And I raised this with Lawrence Booth, the editor of the Almanac, and said, you've got a problem here, mate. Or more to the point, I found something something for the back of the book. I found something for the error section for, you know, you can go back and fix every edition that's ever cited 28.00. And Lawrence regretted to inform me uh, that they don't, on the second decimal point, they don't round up. The second decimal point just oh. remains what it is. So if we were applying that logic to Arthur Morris, it could be 46.4, but um, I'm not having that. 46.49 equals 46.5, uh, if you ask me. So that's a bugbear of mine, though. I, I don't no, understand no, I, why... You're absolutely right. I don't understand why rounding, why all the conventions of rounding up, as you do on the five, would go out the window when we're talking about cricket. Mm. And only when it comes to the second decimal. Why, why Why would the normal conventions of rounding be placed to one side when dealing with what? bowling and batting averages? It's completely arbitrary. You can't mess about with numbers. I'm afraid the rules apply equally to each decimal point all the way to infinity. <laughs> We're going to get in trouble here. Lawrence might like uninvite us from the next almanac function or something like that but i've just got a view oh this this is a hell i'm prepared to die on i mean you know there is no institution larger than the internal logic of numbers (laughs) so uh back to 464 uh, and back to the number that may or may not be adam tunney's uh australia have actually never made that score in an international innings men or women which i was interested by so to that end i I jumped over to the 464 bit and, and pondered like you did with 205 is there another way of interpreting this and i thought well what about a game that's ended with a four a six and a four where a where a team's required 14 to win and they've gone four six four to do it i found pretty easily that Dwayne smith did that in an ipl game about a decade ago but no that doesn't add up to an australian player so i doubt that's what he's referring to there i also found one of those kind of annoying internet riddles but i thought you'd quite like it because your your brain's wired that way i'll read it out to you or i'll i'll, I'll praise it for you 14 runs to get 
Two players on 94, three balls to go. How do they both make it to 100? 14 to get. Three balls to go. Three balls to go. They're both okay. on 94. How do they therefore both get oh, to a century? Oh, oh, oh. It might have been 12 runs to get. It doesn't really matter. The point here is just that it's the it's the I, getting to 100. It's the, yeah, it's the getting to 100. It's the it's the run. Yeah, it's, sorry. It's three, 12 runs to get. It must be, yeah. Three. Four, three off a no ball. And then four. Or three. Well, four. No, it's got to be four. Three off the first one takes him to 97. Change of strike. Yes. Four gets him to 98. Off a no ball. Three gets him to 101 off a no ball. Scores level. Okay. One ball left. He hits a four. So you've gone the you've gone the sort of neighbours Carl Kennedy route here um, when they needed seven off the last ball and they, they got there through an exotic uh, way of doing it. The way this riddle was solved was first ball, batsman nicks it. It misses the wicketkeeper, hits the helmet, five runs. So they move to ninety nine. The second ball. Do you get? Do you get all? Do you get all those? You get all those five, don't you? Yeah, you see, I think you do. Oh, I think you yeah, do. I think you do. So then with yeah. the second ball, you take a single, and then the last ball of the game, yeah. the other bloke twats a six, and they both finish on an even one hundred. So anyway, I'm still no closer to four six four, but just thought I'd run that through with you. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, sort of somewhat tragically, four six four relates to Black Saturday in two thousand and nine. So the um, the seventh of February two thousand and nine, that the tragic bushfires that. I think took the lives of near enough to 200 people uh, in Victoria, especially. It reached 46.4 degrees Celsius that day and they kept playing cricket, which is just oh, no. ridiculous in premier fixtures. And Adam Dale was quoted as saying it was hotter than Sharjah in the club game he was playing in on that occasion. Uh, so, well, do you know, very brief digression on that, yes. when I was at Sydney in 2017, 2017 yes. 18, yes. the hottest day since the 1930s, it reached 47 degrees. I remember. And I think Jimmy Anderson bowled an eight-over spell in completely futile circumstances because Australia were way ahead with just a couple of wickets down. They ended up the looking... End. Yeah, they looked after Jimmy. What happened was Jimmy started the day and then Root realised, I might kill him. I might kill him. <laughs> and, he, and he ended up but, throwing the ball to... It would have been... It was Moeen and whoever the... It was Craig Overton. No, it was Tom Curran. It was Tom Curran. But, had to do the spade work playing his second and last... Probably be his last test match um, against the Marsh brothers when they had that calamitous mix-up when... Was it when Mitch made it to three figures and they they were trying to hug in the middle of the pitch? They didn't realise it had gone for three, not four. And Sean nearly got run out down the other end. Something like that. It was something like that. I remember seeing Jimmy uh, that day, that that, that night... And he looked for all the world like a kind of Welsh coal miner <laughs> emerging from the pit. I mean, th- that really was a day in the dirt. It was the hottest thing I've ever experienced in yeah, my life. I went cool. outside to sample the, the full-on sunshine. And I had, in the time it took me to have a cigarette, I almost had heat stroke. It was an incredible day. Yeah, we, 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 we actually well. talked about that day with Tanya Aldred a couple of years ago on The Final Word. It, it's used as an example of where... And I haven't got the the information in front of me, so this is going to be a a poor explanation of it. But there is a body of work that points to how often we're going to have to anticipate days like this into the future and how it's going to affect Mm. Test cricket. And they need a policy on it because it's not going to be sustainable to send out international cricketers with... The major problem is those fielders in close-wearing helmets and, of course, the batters as well running between the wickets and the heat I mean, stroke in tennis, that can bring in on. in tennis you have a cut-off, don't you, at, at Melbourne, isn't there? Kind it, of like yes, a heat that, and that happened, that, yeah, yeah. That, it's about 38 or 39, and that came in, oh, I mean, 
going on 20 years ago now. And in most club cricket games, you have that as well. So going back to the 2002-03 summer, the first final at the MCG of that one-day series, the attendance went through the roof because they were playing an international game at you know, 40 degrees or whatever, but all of our local cricket had been called off. The difference here in 2009 is that Premier Cricket, that next level up, they had to play in 46.4 degree heat. But we'll we'll move on from there. What I did find myself, though, is is a Shane Warne factoid and one that relates to Lords, a ground that he loves so dearly. Of course, he was coach of the London Spirit last year uh, and that would have ended up being the last time that he spent any time at Lords. Interestingly, though, and this was often raised, he never got his name on the honours board there. He took a number of forfers, but never a fifer. And one of those forfers was in the 2005 Test match uh, to start the series where he and Glenn McGrath bowled out England to end the Test match. We spend a lot of time thinking about day one of that series with, uh, and I've written about it for The Guardian during lockdown a couple of days ago. It was my favourite ever day of Test cricket. Day one, 05 Ashes with Australia all out 190 and England all out 155 mm. the next day, but seven for 70 overnight and, and all the rest of it. But what's lost a little bit is that that turns into quite a good Test match. Australia in the second dig, and, and by that I mean it's not as though it's collapsed after collapse and that's it. Like Australia do get motoring in the second dig and make 384 thanks to Clark and Kadich and Martin who all made half century. So set England 420 and there's rain about, then England get off to a pretty good start. They're none for 80. Now, the probability of chasing 420, as we know, is next to nothing. But if you're going to do so, you need a good start. And, and they got one with uh, Strauss and uh, and uh, Triscothic. Uh, but then um, yeah, Brett Lee's intervention, he, he got Strauss with a bouncer. Then he knocked over Vaughan with an absolute beauty, which I recall he took his off stump out of the ground. And it opened up the game to Warren. KP was down the other end and made none beaten 64. But Warren takes four for 64. And I remember that what was striking in this analysis was that none of them were leg breaks he gets Triscothic with the top spinner he gets Hoggard with the flat one Harmison with the flat one and Ian Bell with the slider and it kind of symbolized what Jeff and I spoke about when doing our Shane Warne tribute episode a few weeks ago that the deeper into Warne's career he got the less he actually relied on the shredded leg break. We all think about the mm-hmm. ball he bowled to Strauss in the second test at Edgbaston, but I, I would I would wager that of the 40 wickets he took in that series, or near enough to 40 wickets he took in that series, that more of them were from deliveries that were going straight on or were doing something subtle compared to mm. the start of his career when it was giant leg breaks and flippers all the way. I reference this because I think we were all, all of us involved in Wisdom Cricket Monthly, asked to give our memories of Shane Warne. And I remember uh, what I wrote about was, was my sister-in-law, who's American. And she was forced to come over to England every summer at the beginning, the first few years of her marriage to my brother, because they lived out in the States, my brother and her. And she would come out and the cricket would be on. And she would very politely sit and watch it back in the late 80s, early 90s. But she did it with no enthusiasm. She was just sort of doing this out of, like, auxorial duty, really. And then Shane Warne appeared... And yeah, I mean, that, that ball, that ball obviously helped her to understand why people pitched the ball on a pitch. Because she, she, she was looking at it through a sort of like a baseball filter, you know. But she got so excited by this guy, by Shane Warne, that we would like be in the kitchen making gin and tonic. And she had shouted us, come in, come in, Warney's on. <laughs> and so we, we would charge in. And she actually got really good at predicting when he would bowl the slider. 
And that was the one that she found most exciting because she, she'd like worked out that there was something spectacular about a ball that turns from one side to the other. But what she loved was the seeming innocuousness of bowling mm. the slow straight one and that being the most dangerous ball. And it just gave her such delight. And, um, you know, anybody who can like basically make an American woman in her 30s appreciate the power of leg spin, but not through the leg spinner is some kind of incredible genius. <laughs> Absolutely. I can't remember whether we spoke about this on, on the daily show, uh, on the weekly show rather, when we recorded that, but I also contributed to that Wisdom Cricket Monthly section and I referred to the last time that Warren bowled at the MCG in a test match with Sajid Mahmood and the flipper and the entire Southern stand almost appealing with Warren knowing did, what was happening. Yeah. Like, you know, you could kind of almost foretell what was happening. So yeah, it's a great part of the mag. I, I recommend that you go out and buy it. That is the number 464. Whether I'm correct or otherwise, uh, Adam Tunney can let us know in the usual way and then we can revisit it on a future edition of Storytime. Next, we have a triple header. A triple header with the number 410. That's from Sam Nemza, Tim O'Meara, and Slim Johns. We're going to start with you, Daniel. It's your turn, and you're going to take Sam Nemza's, uh, and that's in GBP, and that's a free hit. Have fun. Well, I, I did have fun with this, and because there are so, because we've got three four tens to go, mm-hmm. I'm going to let you do much of the kind of you know looking at all the different four tens, and I'm going to cut straight to the chase because okay. I found I found a world record, and you know what I feel about world records. Uh, and it seems to me to be a very appropriate world record because of what we've been talking about quite a bit in Test cricket in the last couple of months. The fear of pitches, the fear of pitches destroying Test cricket because apparently having a whole series of matches that end in three and four days and lots and lots and lots of results, the average cricket fan can completely forget it. The moment we get a high-scoring ball draw, suddenly Test cricket is about to fall apart. <laughs> so I want to I want to take you to the game that had it been had it been played during the era of Twitter and it very very nearly was played during the era of Twitter but had it been played during the era of Twitter might have resulted in the premature collapse of test cricket as we know it <laughs> oh but you know what cricket it just does itself no favors cricket it just does itself no favors I know. Isn't it terrible? Why can't everything just be pre-programmed to be incredibly Why are the ECB trying to kill cricket? (laughs) Why are they trying to kill cricket? (laughs) I couldn't agree with you more. (laughs) So I'm going to take you to a place you've been very recently. Okay. A place you have very fond memories of, very fond recent memories of. I'm going to take you to Lahore. (laughs) Okay. Between the 13th and 17th of January, 2006. And it's kind of beautiful because it's a time in the not-too-distant past when India used to play against Pakistan in test matches. Oh, weren't they the days, eh? So, it's India a great test Pakistan. matches too. That's a, it's a wonderful era. They were playing every year through that stretch. That might be the last That's of right. the series. Anyway, please continue. This is a great test match, but only if you love your numbers because there is a record here that is Bradman-esque in its difference, in its distance, I should say, from the record it sets and the next and the next t- the next one down, if you like, between first and second. So, India, uh, Pakistan, I should say, um, when the toss go out to bat, and they decide on a what must be, I'm saying, a fairly flat deck to compile 
quite quickly in 143.3 overs. 679 for seven. Right? Yunus Khan. 313. No. No. Yunus Khan. And I'm amazed I haven't seen enough. I haven't seen this dismissal Ah. any time as often as I should have done. Is run out. For 199. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm confusing that. He did make a triple 100. Anyway, he yes, did. the 199. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Not, yeah, not yeah, in yeah. that game. So, Yunus Khan, 199. He and Muhammad Yusuf put on 319 for the third wicket. So, they're 455 for two after 109 overs at one point. Muhammad Yusuf, 173. Boom, boom, Afridi. 103 in 80 balls with seven fours and seven sixes. A little chat about boom, boom. Imagine what that would have been like. And he was in partnership for some of that with Cameron Achmal, who got 102 not out in 81 balls, 11 fours and two sixes. That particular partnership put on 191 in just 21 overs. That would have been fun (laughs) to watch. Yep. There are some pretty upset bowlers in there, I've got to tell you. Irfan Patan. One for 133. Ajita Gurkha, two for 122. Harbhajan Singh, none for 176. Even the great Anil Kumble, two for 179. You're thinking, what's this got to do with 410? I can hear you cry because there's no 410s in there. What's this got to do with 410? Well, I'll tell you what it's got to do with 410. So let me just give you a little bit of background before I tell you why it's 410. So... Think of record partnerships. Think of the record first wicket partnerships. At this time in 2006, the record first wicket partnership was 413 between Mankad and Roy. Yes. For India against New Zealand in 1956. This is before the Mackenzie and Smith 415 partnership against Bangladesh in Chittagong in 2008. So that was a kind of iconic, it was an iconic first wicket partnership. It was one that people had sort of grown up with knowing all 413 if you're that way inclined i imagine many of our (laughs) listeners are and you know how our indian friends are are also they do love their records records are very very important so there'd been a bit of rain around in lahore and there wasn't really time to, to make a game of it so despite pakistan having gone so quickly and scored those 676 india india responded with 410 for one, right? Okay. That 410 is entirely comprised of the first wicket partnership between Verenda Sewag, 254, Rahul Dravid, 128, compiled in 77 overs, right? And then they shook hands. Sewag was out. VVS Laxman comes in to face one ball. That's the end of the game. They were literally four runs away from beating that record. And I think you can tell from the mode of dismissal, Verenda Sewag caught Cameron Akmal, bowled Naved al-Hassan. I'm imagining he was playing a big smash to try <laughs> to get to the record. Thick edge. 410 for one. So, but wait a minute. Didn't Daniel say this is a record? There is a record here that has been broken, that is a Bradman-esque record. I see no record being broken. I see a record failing to be broken mm. by three runs. That 410. Well, my friend, I crunched the numbers, by which I mean I got hold of Andy Zaltzman, because I saw a (laughs) test match that said 676 for six, plays 410 for one, 
that's a lot of runs for not very many wickets. Ah, yes. It certainly is. It certainly is. I'll tell you what the average per wicket is in this match. 136.12. That's that's a lot, isn't it? I'll tell you how much it is. It's 27 more than the second highest average, which is for India against New Zealand at Delhi in 1955. Average of 109.3. This is the most run-drenched and wicketless game of test cricket ever to have been played. It features a first wicket partnership of 410. And that, my friend, is your story. Oh, I applaud you for that. I, I felt at different points at Rolpindi we were on track for something like that. You were, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I reckon we were watching last year, the final day of the season when we were at the Oval, not really covering uh, Surrey and Glamorgan, but kind of half-heartedly covering Surrey and Glamorgan as part of the um, ill-fated wicket watch that was um, summarily executed before we got a chance to roll it out properly. That's where I would say. Yep. Anyway, let, let's let's move away from uh, debating the, the strengths or otherwise of um, uh, the county cricket coverage. And um, we saw Surrey and Glamorgan have a, a, a scorecard that would resemble that. I, I felt like it was about oh, 600 for it was, four against 700 for five or something like that. Well, do you know, it's funny you should say that because I was just talking about that today. It was 672 for six, played 722 for four, which is 1,394 for 10, Mm -hmm. which is actually an even more run-drenched first-class match. Good. So we've probably seen... We've been there, baby. We have seen a game more boring... Much more boring because they didn't sort... Because, you know, in this test match, by the way, I, I didn't give you the, the, the full or most astounding number. They went at an average of 4.93 and over, both sides. <laughs> I mean, if they'd had five days, there could have been like two and a half thousand runs scored. That, that's, what, that's, what these guys, that's what those guys are like when they play test cricket against each other. India, Pakistan, test cricket of that era was electrifying. It's such a shame that it hasn't been a, hasn't been a thing for about... 13, 14 years now, whatever it is. Fingers crossed they can find a way into the future. Thank you. Well, that's the first of three 410s. That's you, Sam. Next up is Tim O'Meara, who is a, a re-upper. We've had Tim in the past. Uh, his clue was that it's in honour of Mrs O's childhood crush and it isn't the obvious, brackets, Boxing Day 1981. Now, okay. I went down a fairly deep wormhole here before realising that I misread the clue. So, look, I know that Tim's from the same part of Melbourne that I grew up in. His brother, Andrew, and I played cricket against each other growing up. And I know that Tim is older, and I know that we've talked about Tim having watched cricket in the early 80s before. So I started thinking about 81 Boxing Day, what it represented, and what 410 might represent in that context. And and then, of course, the bit about having a crush on a player from the early 80s. Originally, I'm like, well, Hooksy... You know, uh, was the glamour player of that era, albeit not in the test team at that particular point in time. But he wasn't that prominent in 1981 because, well, that wasn't long after Andy Roberts has broken his jaw in World Series cricket and he was on his way back. DK, but that's a bit too obvious. And and uh, thinking about the Boxing Day test of 1981, it's about Lily, who takes seven for and breaks the world record, uh, and Larry Gomes, of course. And it's about Kim Hughes making his perfect century, 100 from 200 balls on a on a minefield on the first day. I thought it could be a West Indian, but like, let's not overcomplicate matters here. There were nine other Australians in that match who weren't named Lily or Hughes. They were Bruce Laird, Graham Wood, <laughs> Greg Chappell, Alan Border, Dirk Wellham, Rod Marsh, Bruce Yardley, Jeff Lawson and Terry Alderman. 
So I thought, well, are there any 410s in that set on that scorecard? Well, Bruce Laird, Stumpy, made four, but from 18 balls in 16 minutes. So that doesn't work. And, and Alan Border made four as well, but that was from 43 deliveries when he was toughing it out across 61 minutes. And then I realised, fuck, error of my ways, four for 10, 1981 Boxing Day. That's what the Windies were at Stumps on Boxing Day when... Viv's knocked over final ball of the day, uh, that brilliant piece of commentary from Tony Gregg to end an extraordinary day of test cricket. Viv's bowled for a duck. Lily runs off the ground. Windy's a four for ten in this a fucking ray, as I um, heard you uh, talking with Jeff uh, uh, on Storytime last week about the Bears mm-hmm. piece of commentary from the 2009 Ashes, which also featured on our Calling the Shots doco a couple of years ago. And then I had to go back to the start and, and, and you know reconsider all of my life decisions. And one of those was ruling out David Hooks. Why did I rule out David Hooks? He still was a glamorous cricketer of that era. And I think it might just be him. And here's why. David Hooks took one test wicket at an average of 41 on the dot, 4-1-0. Oh. It isn't even on Crick Info what he bowled. You'd be more of a chance of telling me what he bowled. I think he bowled. I seem to remember him bowling. I could be wrong, but I think I have a memory of him bowling in the 1977 tour in England. Right. And I think it was kind of filthy leggies, you know? Okay. It was, I think it was. Um, I mean, I say that I was eight years old at the time, and I think he he might well have bowled. And there were a couple of boring drawn tests that were rain affected in that 1977 series, and I think it might have been you know to to play out time towards the back end. I had a feeling. Well, well this well, this, is, well, this, is he, well, this is how this is how this is how he gets his test two. wicket as well. It, it's a test that's that's dragging out. I, I know that when he came to England and played at Dulwich Cricket Club, that he. He lost a number of balls, probably against filthy part-time leg spin. They talk about him whacking ball after ball out over the train tracks there. Yeah, this was a test in 1985 when he took his one wicket. Uh, it would have been his second last, I reckon. It was against India, uh, and it was at his home ground, Adelaide Oval. The test was dying a slow death. India made 520. Australia made 381. In the 202nd over, before it was all over for India, uh, Hooks got out India's number 11, Shival Yadav, Caught by Big Merv, uh, and he finished with one for four. But that made his bowling average 41 exactly. Uh, and, yes, I, I know we were just talking about one Australian great who died too early in Shane Warne and was farewelled on his home ground, the MCG. Well, so it was for David Hooks, who in uh, 2004 died in tragic circumstances and was farewelled at the Adelaide Oval, the ground where he took his one test wicket. Was he Mrs O'Meara's childhood crush? I think there's a decent chance, so let's lock it in. David Hook's bowling average, 41. Oh, I like that. And, you know, when I was a kid, I, I had a... It wouldn't be a crush, a kind of like a boy crush on David Hook's because he had this uh, shock of blonde hair, which I also had when, you know, when I had <laughs> hair and when I was eight years old and I first saw him. And he, he also wore the open-necked shirt, which was very common in the 1970s. Yes. You know, slightly unbuttoned down to the sternum. He wore that with terrific panache. I was uh, I was always a big fan of Hooksy. Okay, okay. Well, I'm glad we had a chance to tell at least part of his story uh, on the show today. There's one more in this triple header of 410. It's back to you, Daniel, and it is the number of Slim Johns. Yes, well, I'm going to cut straight to the chase because the moment I realised what the cap number 410 denoted in Australian cricket history was the moment that 
We just need to spend a little bit of time, and I'm, I'm going to involve you in this, Colo, because okay. you know this guy, and you know his travails more than I do. But to me, he's he's one of those... He's part of an era of Australian cricket where the late, great Shane Warne appeared to be quite involved in the selection of the next spinner through through thoughts and words that would come here and yes. there. You know, Michael Beer, you've got to use Michael Beer. And there, there was never quite enough love for Nathan Horitz, I thought, in this time. Others that may come into this category may include Xavier Doherty, who I will come to talk about very briefly later on in today's show. But the one that really jumped out at me is cap number 410. And it is a man who I feel extraordinarily sorry for. He's the kind of Simon Kerrigan of Australian cricket. He's Bryce McGain. Oh, right, yes. Because poor old Bryce McGain holds the record. It's all about records for me today. Yeah. Holds the record for the worst bowling analysis by an Australian. None for 148. He did it on debut. Well, I say debut. He did it in his only test of just 18 overs. And... The backstory to this is that, you know, Bryce McGain was not a full-time professional cricketer until he was 35, I think it is. Um, he was an IT worker. Mm. Nothing wrong with being an IT worker. I think he worked for, all right, saying he worked for, for ANZ's Bank's IT section. And at this time, Australia were understandably on the lookout for spin. They'd been spoilt by the Warren era, the McGill, Warren McGill era, if you like. And... Uh, they're scurrying around and Bryce McGain bowling his leggies and he had this really unfortunate build-up to his yes. test day because he went out to Australia uh, to India to play for Australia A and he got a freak injury he, he got he injured tendons in his armpit I mean I didn't even know I had tendons in my armpit let alone that you could injure them and so he was he had to go back and he had to have surgery but he didn't give up he said no no I'm on the verge here. I can I can become a first class. I can become a test cricketer. And sure enough, he gets selected and he plays at Cape Town, the third test against South Africa. And it's a really interesting Aussie lineup. You look back to that era when Australia, it's a, it reminds me a bit of where Australia were in the late 70s, early 80s, and sort of just not quite getting their team sorted. You've got Philip Hughes, Simon Cattage at the top of the order, very familiar, Ricky Ponty, Mike Arcee. Michael Clark, and then Andrew McDonald, Bryce McGain, Ben Hilfenhaus. Sort of not not like not not bad players, but not the sort of awesome players that you know, not the Cummins, not the Starks, not the Hazelwoods. Mm. And they're bundled out for two hundred and nine against a very, very good South African side. I mean that South African side is pretty much number one in the world around then. You've got Dale Stain and Teeny, Callis, Albie Morkel. Uh, less said about Paul Harris, the better, although he managed to pick up three wickets as Australia bowled up for 209. And as we know, Cape Town's a capricious beast of a pitch. Quite a good one to bowl on first because it does flatten out. And so poor old Bryce gets his opportunity. He's, he's got the baggy green, the sainted baggy green. He's placed it on the head. And bowler counts, lovely chap. He then goes out to face an onslaught. Ashwell Prince, 150. A.B. de Villiers, 163 and 196 balls, 12 fours, seven sixes, quite a lot of them against Bryce McGain. If you're Bryce McGain making your debut and you're up against possibly the most naturally talented sportsman who ever lived, C.B. Fry might have a word, but 
all-round sportsman, AB de Villiers. I, I want to see champion. I, yeah, I was going to say. I, I want to see AB de Villiers. As we learnt um, when talking about CB uh, a couple of weeks ago, could he, from a standing start, do a backflip and land on a mantelpiece, which was CB Fry's um, party trick. If, if if he could do that, then maybe. If he could, I think, set the long jump world could. record with a few under his belt, as was the story that went around with that. Just on like the the McGain arrival to the test scene. You're right that they wanted to pick him earlier and his body wasn't right. And when they did get to him, he probably just started to decline a bit. But he was a fabulous bowler for Victoria who had to wait a long time for his opportunity. And the other part of that story, well, one of the parts to it, is that he missed his flight to South Africa. His alarm didn't go off. Or whatever it was, he didn't make it onto the plane in time. So he was already on the back foot before that series even began. But he gets the opportunity at Cape Town, and he does create an early chance. There's a, there's one of those interviews that, uh, that that sort of the Cricket Australia website popped up at the time, and it still lives out there somewhere on YouTube. And I happened upon it a few years ago. Bryce McGain might have something like none for twenty or four to start his first mm-hmm. day as a bowler in Test cricket, including a top edge from Prince that just goes over the head of the man at backward point. Not sure who it was, but. You know, let's say it's a you know within a foot or so of him being in the book straight away and getting you know getting an early wicket and mm. and, and getting out a bloke who goes on to pulverise him tomorrow alongside AB de Villiers. Instead, it goes the other way, as has been so often the case for new leg spinners. He 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 gets the yips to an extent not too dissimilar to Simon Kerrigan, who by the way is a great story. I think now I've tried to interview him a couple of times and he's, he's declined the offer. Since moving counties, Kerrigan has, has been quite effective at Northamptonshire, and I know it's 11 years since he was instrumental in winning the championship for Lancashire, and I guess we're nearly a decade since his test match at the Oval, but my, but my point is that you, you can make a recovery from something like that, mm. but the thing with McGain was he was probably 36 or 37 by that point. He was, uh, he was, he was 36, 36, and you know, yeah. in a strange quirk, he was Australia's oldest test debutant since... Another Aussie leggy who always looked actually fifty six, not thirty six. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Who uh, played so well in nineteen eighty five on occasion in a losing team, but grey haired and bespectacled. There's always something exotic about leggies. But the, the, Bryce is just a guy I I've, I felt for because I, I can imagine the world swallow, you know wanting to be swallowed up by it. I mean, it's, I, I, I said none for hundred and forty eight was none for hundred and forty nine, and that is. I mean, you know, when you've been waiting all that time, and it, as you say, it's, how do you come back from that at 36, making your debut, and well, then you go for that? Well, well, a couple of points in closing on Bryce. One is that you're right, he's a great bloke. I've worked a little bit with him on, on SCN in the last couple of seasons. Lovely fella, excellent analyst on the game. Does a great job with Adam White commentating the Sheffield Shield as well for Victoria. So he does the live stream, and a lot of that appears on, on Fox Cricket, I think, through KO. And also that Jared Kimber has written a long piece about the Bryce McGain experience that, that I don't know when he wrote it, but he gave it the Kimber treatment uh, as a fellow leg spinner from Melbourne. He did it justice. So if you want to learn more about Bryce's story, I can recommend Jared as I often do. Uh, I think it was back in his oh, cricket yeah. days. Actually, I mean, I, I think Jared in many ways thinks that he could have been Bryce McGain himself. <laughs> and I still think, he, I think he thinks he still could be. <laughs> Part of the beauty of Jared is that he's never out of the contest. That is the end of our triple header. That's the that's the four ten. It's going to be followed by a double header though. 
uh, I'll have you know. 417, uh, in both cases, it's uh, existing pledgers who've come back to have another swing. Rob O'Neill, who had that extraordinary back and forth with Jeff across about six months a couple of years ago. So thank you, Rob, for getting back in the queue. And Andrew Dono Donison, uh, one of our, our dearest friends and uh, the man who made everything possible in the UAE back in 2018. It feels like a long time ago now. I'll go first with Donny, uh, one of my dearest mates. His clue for 417 is, I wasn't at this match, even though it would have been safe to assume I would have been. Yes, I'm serious. Now, Dono and I are about five years apart in age. He's five years older than me, but we share so many of those kind of formative quintessential MCG moments. Because the MCG is so fucking big. Everyone just goes all the time. <laughs> and you can be pretty sure if something significant's happened there, everyone was probably there, right? So Dono and I have a lot of, a lot of crossover in this respect. But yeah, so trying to find something that was a big deal at the MCG that everyone was kind of at and, and he wasn't at... Well, he wasn't quite old enough to have been at the centenary test that we talk about all the time. That's what England made uh, in the fourth and final innings of, of that match, chasing 463 to, of course, fall short by the same margin that they did back in 1877. But they did make 417, but Dono wasn't born by then, so we'll, we'll put a line through that. I did think, though, Daniel, that it's a couple of years since we uh, spoke to David Frith for the second episode of Calling the Shots, and, and David explained to us that the centenary test in 1977 just happened to coincide with his 40th birthday and he you know and it's considered to be one yeah. of the, one of the great celebrations if not the greatest celebration of test cricket and Frith being one of the, the great not just writers but historians uh, uh, archivists curators. curators curators of the great game yeah. yeah all of that that it was so appropriate that it was kind of one protracted five day 40th birthday party for him but yes it wouldn't have been something that our pledger Andrew Donison was at but then I landed on one then I landed on a contender in the perfect era the 1996 Boxing Day Test Match Australia up against the West Indies Australia arrive there to zip up having won at Brisbane and at Sydney and you might say Daniel Sydney why is the Sydney test being played before the Melbourne test well that's because yeah, why? the Sydney New Year's test is not traditional to lead into uh. some peep show stuff here. Cauliflower is not traditional. The the Sydney New Year's test is about as traditional as the Melbourne Boxing Day test. It's it's traditional in the last, you know, sort of, well, the Boxing Day test is more traditional than, than, than the Sydney New Year's. But it was quite often the case that the Sydney test was played either before Christmas or, or deeper into the summer, as it was in 1996 when Australia won there. So it was also a bit of a novelty that Australia were were coming to the third test of a series against the Windies 2-0 up, remembering uh, how difficult it had been for them, uh, how they came so close in 92-93. Indeed, they came within two runs of winning at Adelaide, which would have been uh, an extraordinary series victory against the best team in the world. Of course, between times, they'd beaten the West Indies in the Caribbean in 1995 to become the best team according to the rankings. So they were the top dog. But still, there, there was something special, I assure you, about playing the Windies at that particular time, especially a team that had Kirtley Ambrose playing for them. And it's fair to say that after losing uh, the first two test matches, he was rather fired up at Melbourne, uh, and he bowled out Australia on the first day for 219, taking a five-wicket bag. In reply, the Windies made only 255, though, uh, with Jimmy Adams top scoring and a couple of half centuries as well for Shivnarayan Chandapal and Junior Murray. I saw there was quite a lot of love for Junior Murray uh, at Grenada 
a couple of weeks ago, wasn't there? I think that must be. Was it? Was there? Is there a grandstand named after him there, or, or something like that? So, uh, I'm not sure. There uh, might I be. Picking, I was picking up on yeah, some Junior sure. Murray stuff on social media, and I, I think it relates to the fact that he must be from Grenada. Anyway, so you know the game's almost in the balance when we enter the third innings, and then Kirtley comes back again, and Australia were castled for 122. It all started with the big man knocking over Matthew Hayden. I think he took his middle stump out of the ground for naught and he nicked off Justin Langer for naught as well. Australia a two for three and stuffed. Later on he came back and, and cleaned up the tail and finished with four for 17, our number from 12 of the very best overs. Match figures of nine for 73 and chasing 87. The Windies did it easy to, to get the series back to 2-1 and give themselves some chance of having a comeback as they did in 92. 293, but uh, they then went to Adelaide and, and Michael Bevan took 11 wickets in one of the more remarkable uh, test matches uh, of my childhood that Bevan, who was notionally there as a, a top six batter, yeah. bowled them out in both innings and, and that gave that was, Australia that was one the of series the- win. That was part of a kind of like, uh, there was a bit of that happening, wasn't it? There was Michael Clark, it was Alan Border. There's, yes. there's a, as a sort of as a, uh, an England fan, you would see, how's Bevan done this? How's Michael Clark taken six for nine? Why has Alan Border got seven for 21? And, uh, well, and they, they all did it. Gave, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and it, ga- it gave the ground that reputation, didn't it, for, um, for excessive spin, which is now... Yeah really inappropriate I yeah, would say yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it was always sort yeah. of like, again this was Adelaide with Bevan so it was Sydney and Adelaide where you could occasionally see uh, someone do something special Peter Who as well Peter Taylor in 86-87 from nowhere taking six on, on test debut at Sydney so you're right there were a number of those unusual uh, bowling analyses anyway um, the Windies win the final test it's a pretty scrappy match at the Wacker on a shit track and Australia win the series 3-2 I just wanted to go back though to 4-17 and Kirtley it was his final visit to Australia Three test series, 14 test matches, 78 wickets at 19.8. Six five-wicket bags, of course, the famous seven-for-one spell, the defining spell of that 1993 test match at the Wacker. And four years before that, one Jeff Lawson broken jaw. Um, So, yes, uh, Kirtley Ambrose was quite the bowler in Australia and his last great performance was at the MCG when he took four for 17 in 1996. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Well, you've given me a 417 as well, haven't you? I have indeed. So the second part of the doubleheader, back to you. Uh, this is Rob O'Neill. And noting that Rob has given us a clue, my next number is already in the spreadsheet. It has no connection whatsoever to Joe Angel. I know that Rob and Jeff have a thing going on. I don't want, to, I don't want us to intervene too much into that, but I have faith, <laughs> armed with that, you'll be able to have some fun. Well, I did have some fun because I basically took the clue that it has nothing to do with Joe Angel as a clue that it could be about absolutely anything I wanted it to be, as long as it's not about Joe Angel. <laughs> so <laughs> I've adopted that principle on, to, on today's story time quite a lot. So I looked around, usual suspects, when you've got a number like this, obviously looked at cap numbers. Brian Bolas is one, one of the great named England players. What's a bolus? I mean, B-O-L-U-S. It sounds like some kind of terrible internal wart or something similar. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he was, he was a player of uh, some repute in the 60s for England, but I, I doubted that it was Brian Bolus. Xavier Doherty, who I mentioned earlier. You did. He's cap number 417. And there's a very... He's a, Xavier Doherty's quite a lucky guy because if you go onto Crick Info and you check out the worst bowling averages of anyone in Test cricket history, they make an arbitrary cutoff of eight wickets. Okay? 
eight wickets. Which is lucky for Xavier Doherty because he took seven wickets. And he averages 78.28 in Test cricket, which would have made him the third worst bowler of all time behind, quite interestingly, Ashoka de Silva, who is, you know, Ashoka de Silva, the umpire? The umpire, yeah. Yeah, he took eight wickets at an average of 129. And bear in mind that he was in the team as a bowler. Uh, the second worst bowling analysis for anyone who's taken over eight wickets is for a batter. So it's not really fair. Montgenhali Jasima, who averages 97.11. Next up comes Xavier Doherty. And uh, he, bless him, it's, it's, very it's, it, it's, it, But it's not the worst bowling average ever in Test cricket. For If you have a minimum no. of one wicket, you know who that is, don't you? Yeah. Is it Michael Atherton? No, it's Ravi. <laughs> Ravi Ravi took one wicket at is it one wicket at three eighty five or one wicket at two eighty five? Of course Ravi's oh. a fabulous bowler and he's had such a great career as a as an all rounder, but just wasn't uh, effective in, in taking wickets at test level, so he, he holds that unfortunate Mike, record. Does, does Atherton average is about two hundred and eighty two though, doesn't he? Because did he not take one for and that was it? Ath- um, that's one wicket is well, no, he took more than one wicket, didn't he? That's the thing. So his did average he? company, he did. He got Waz, didn't he? The, the old Lancashire teammate thing. Out leg before with one that probably wasn't out. The old leg before decision with one that would never be given out on, you know. That's right. Um, That's right. It, these That's days, right. When, now that we know a lot more about what's pitching, what's hitting in line with impact when that was interpreted more liberally back in that generation, I think. The great Pankaj Singh got quite close to um, challenging all that because I think he played three or four test matches before he took his first wicket. And so there was a brief ah. period when he had an absolutely colossal average, but then he <laughs> yes. picked up a few. Michael um, Kaspervitz, another. Mike, I think Mike Kaspervitz went two test matches without a wicket and then the seven-wicket bag at Lord's, was it, 97? Was it Lord's 97 when Kaspervitz takes his mm. seven? It was early in the series. Yeah. I think it was. Anyway, might have been interesting. That, that redeemed him. So those are my players there. Then I looked at test match number 417, and there's a big thing on the final word, and indeed in, amongst all sensible cricketers and cricket fans around the Bannerman. Mm-hmm. And there was a moment in test match 417 when Vinu Mankad oh. really looked like he had a chance of doing the Bannerman. Gosh. He'd scored, well, he'd scored 223 out of 365 for seven. So you've now got some tail-enders in at the other end and Mankad going berserk. So had he hung around for another 40, 50 minutes, he might just have pipped Bannerman in Test Match 4-1-7. But unfortunately, he got out for 223. The rest is history. He ended up with well over 50% of his team's runs, but that's not Bannerman worthy. It's not. But it could have been. He also took three for 57 in that game, incidentally, and they won one by an innings, unsurprisingly. It's another mention for Vinu Mankad today, after the Pankaj Roy Vinu Mankad. Well, it, it, first it, wicket it, you're just tapping onto all the all the hotspots for um, for the final word here. Yeah. A Bannerman and a Mankad all in the same sentence there. I've nearly slipped off my seat. Well, I aim to please. But where I'm going to go with 417 is I'm going to go avowedly Australian. Okay. Because I think we should do. And I was thinking about famous 417s in cricket history. Well, it's not got the fame it should have because the number that comes after 417, namely 418... As is the convention. (laughs) As is the convention. ...is the most celebrated run-drenched 
victory target achieved in Test cricket history. Yes, by it the is. West Indies in Antigua against Australia. Yeah, but that Test is interesting for a couple of reasons. Not just that the West Indies scored four hundred and eighteen, but at the end of the first innings, and this has only happened, I believe, eight times in Test cricket history. Interestingly, twice at Antigua, the previous time when Brian Lara scored 375, not out, out of a total of 593, mm. to which England responded with an all-out total of 593, ah. have sides at the end of their first innings yes. scored exactly the same runs as each other. It's, how many? It's about a, it's about a dozen, isn't it, it's, from memory? I... Th- uh, I th- Andy sent me through the list. We were at one. As, we were at one recently. Yes. We were at Lords in 2019, weren't we? When that happened, I think it was. I think it might have Ashes been then. Yeah, it's. It was. It, it might have been. I think you. Were, I think we. Test. I think Ashes Test 2019 was scores level after the first innings. I've, I've got a feeling that well, it's a test that you and I have done recently. It is, and it's a delicious rarity. You could check it out. Andy sent me the list, but okay. I think it was only about. I think it's only about eight. And uh, three of them in the West Indies, two in Antigua, one in Kingston. And when I say two in Antigua, it's because, yes, you guessed it, in that incredible fourth test at St John's, Australia made 240 in the first innings. The West Indies made 240 in the second innings, uh, in the first innings. And then in the third innings, Australia scored 417, which is the number we're looking at. And if Uh, if you drill down a little bit... They started with an opening partnership of 242. You imagine putting on an opening partnership of 242. You're 242 for none, in effect, in a one-innings match. Lang, 111. Hayden, 177. Adam Gilchrist gets pushed up the order. He goes in at number three to get on with it. Doesn't work. He gets out for six, but it doesn't matter. Gives you the idea of the Aussie mindset. When they're bowled out for 417, they're probably thinking... We've got enough. They've done that in 104 overs, basically four and over. And then the West Indies, <laughs> Brian Lara only making 60, Chris Gale only making 19. Sarwan. Sarwan and Chanderpaul turn the whole game around. Sarwan 105, Chanderpaul 104. Even then, even then at 372 for seven, Australia are right back in it. I mean, look at their bowling attack in that game. It's it's almost the abled one. It's got McGrath. Gillespie, Lee, McGill, Bickle. I mean, that is a that is a strong, strong bowling lineup. That, that was that was so strong that, that was the series when they thought they thought, fuck it, let's just play Gilchrist at six, and it worked mostly. It's where Steve Waugh continued on after making that hundred. It's most well known that day for the exchange. I say most well known, pretty well known for the relatively unsavoury exchange between Sarwan and. McGrath, which begins with yeah. which begins with McGrath inquiring as to what Brian Lara's <laughs> cock might taste like to someone who didn't take too kindly <laughs> to that, and he returned serve with some um, relatively unpleasant. I can't remember the exact reply, but it was also pretty rough, pretty pretty roguish, and and away they went, and they were up in each other's grill, as they say. Well, it didn't it didn't work on this occasion to intimidate dear old Ramaresh. Because, I mean, look, Chanderpaul got 104 in 154 balls. Sarwan, 105 in 139. It's a, it's a remarkable turnaround. But even at the fall of the seventh wicket, with Omari Banks and Vazput Drakes playing one of his few test matches, they come together still needing another 46. 
and they nonchalantly knocked the runs off in 12 overs between them, with only Mervyn Dillon and Jermaine Lawson to come. They make it to 418, but that 418 would never have been possible without, firstly, the statistical twerk of tied scores at the end of the first innings, and 417. Uh, what, what I want to know here is, you might not have this at your disposal, but how many overs to, to rattle off 418? Well, I could do some quick calcs. Um, 72 overs, the first Australian first innings took. 65 for the West Indies is 136. Uh, take off uh, five, for that's 141. Add 100, uh, 245. So what are you looking at? Quite a lot. They, uh, yeah, they probably had about 150 overs to get it. Okay, all right. I was going to say it's something about test matches that that finish like that for whatever reason. They always seem to, seemingly make the final half an hour, and thus the tie becomes part of the conversation as well as. I mean, the fact that both tied test matches finished in the final over. I think mm. we overlook that sometimes that a test match can be tied in two days in theory. A test match doesn't need to go till the final over of it. Yeah. But it did at Brisbane in 1960, and it did at Chennai in 1986. It was the penultimate delivery, wasn't it, in Chennai, and the final delivery in Brisbane. So it's you know it's just just one of the one of the beautiful quirks. That is what makes them so brilliant. In fact, I'm sorry, I could have I could have been more accurate. They had 203 overs to get it because they closed day four the West Indies on 371 for six. Oh, right, okay. So it, so it they, wasn't so like quite came, like they that. They came back the next day. And knocked off the overs in the morning. Uh, knocked off the runs in the morning in 15 overs. Beautifully done. Not quite Australia knocking off 403 in a day, but still, you know, pretty good. Mm. Pretty good. Pretty good. Well, that's oh, yeah. our that's our double header of 417 dealt with. Rob O'Neill, Andrew Donison, thank you both. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. My last number of the day. I, I said at the top of the show, stick around because I've got a good answer at the end. Uh, believe oh, yeah. me, believe me, here it comes. Claire, Danny Daniel, 283. DC, it's been a while. Play the music. <laughs> Thank you, Chesney. Uh, we have a dusty old bastard and 283 is right in the dusty old bastard zone and this let me tell you it's the story of a man called mandy uh, mandy mitchell innes to be precise who wore cap 283 and he only wore it once and it was in 1935 against the touring south africans and he was a posho amateur and he went to oxford and he was barely even a county cricketer at the time he ticks every possible ludicrous D.O.B. box from that especially skittish era of England test selection. Believe me, I don't oh, even know. Mandy, I don't Mandy even know Mitchell where to start. I don't even know where to start, Daniel. First things first. It doesn't say Mandy on his birth certificate. Norman Stuart Mitchell Innes. How that becomes Mandy? If you're a, I suppose Norman, <laughs> Norman, Norman, man, Mandy. And like John Jameson, who we started the show with, he was also born in India, in Calcutta, uh, to be precise, in, in 1914. And he was this prolific schoolboy. So Mandy wasn't just some rando who got a test cap. He, he was better than that. He was 
a schoolboy at Sedberg. Is that how you pronounce it? That school up Se- in I think it's I think it's Sedborough, they say. Sedborough. But yeah. You know what I'm yeah. trying to say? The school up in yeah, Cumbria. I know. That a lot it's of people bought at and they've played first class cricket there. They still do play first class cricket there, I think, or at least they've played they might have played Royal London games there in anyway. The, the point is Well is they that- did they, they they played some first class games there quite recently, but uh, then they then they they didn't. I mean by quite recently, I mean like a couple of years ago. Yes, uh, and it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful setting. It's it, I mean it's idyllic really, but it's also virtually impossible to get to. But uh, I think the women, uh, Lancashire, uh, the Lancashire women's team plays at Sebra quite a bit. Right. So this is where Mandy went to school, and and I said he's a posho. He's, he was actually a scholar. Um, so his family grew up well he kind of grew up in scotland and kind of grew up in somerset a little bit of column a a little bit of column b by summer he was in somerset though and they picked him as a high school student as a 16 year old in 1931 on his summer holiday making all these runs at sedborough and they go how do you feel about coming down to taunton and and playing a game of professional cricket at age 16 and he and, and so he did so that's where it began for him this really odd initiation wasn't on the books hadn't yet gone to university he did in turn go to oxford he made so many runs at oxford he captained them he got blues in every year he played 43 first class games for the university and tallied nine centuries 3300 runs more runs than anyone had ever made for oxford at that particular point i'm not sure if it's still the record but i suppose it's probably close that included a double century so you know he's a prodigy he's a guy who people are expecting will kick on. And we talked about C.B. Fry before and, 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 and that sort of energy of, of cricketers that could have done anything. Well, he had a bit of that about him as well. He hit, he hit a 295-yard hole-in-one when earning his Ooh. blue in golf at Oxford as well. So this guy, I mean, Mandy Mitchell Innes was a serious sportsman. But mm. in the middle of all of that, he's also a law student and he's kind of starting to lay the foundation for, a, for like a real job outside of cricket. So he's studying properly. He's not playing much county cricket. And then the touring South Africans rock up in 1935 and play at the parks, play against Oxford. And he rattles off what is written up as a sparkling 168. And Plum Warner just happens to be there. And he's like, yeah. and the quote goes, I think you better come and play for us in the first test match at Trent Bridge. <laughs> He's a second-year law student, and because Plum Warner's, as it was described in the obituary, authoritative word carried so much sway, I suppose it would, being only a few years after Bodyline, where he was sort of part of the yeah. part of the, the genesis of all of that. Noting that he did play eleven games for Somerset in nineteen thirty-four in his summer holiday, and averaged twenty. So you know he's nowhere near the mark at the level below. Mm. But because of one innings for Oxford and all the runs he'd made in his first couple of years there, he's packing up his kit and he's off to Trent Bridge. Now, the test match that he plays in is rather unremarkable. He makes five and that's it. He does some good work fielding in close. But because he was fielding in close and Headley Verity was the principal spinner, he was very mindful that he had to do a good job there at short leg the whole way through. And Mandy suffered a dreadful bout of hay fever a couple of days before the test match. And because he was anxious about potentially sneezing at short leg to Verity (laughs) and dropping a catch, he made himself 
unavailable for the test match at Lords. No, 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 Mandy. I'm sorry. Oh, Mandy. I'm sorry. I'm not going to play because I'm worried about dropping a catch off Headley Verity. More bedlam follows. This is the most extraordinary injury excuse I've ever heard in my life. Hay fever. He's worried wow. about fucking Sorry, sneezing. I've interrupted. I'm, I'm just so stunned by this. Go on. So, because <laughs> he's because the thing is, he's imagining it's Verity. He's not. He's not like thinking about dropping a catch off Vos or anybody else. It's like if you drop a catch off Verity, you drop a catch off. You'll never hear the last off, of it. Well, <laughs> yeah, if you drop a catch off the big dog, and, and apparently at Trent Bridge he fielded so he was fearless, and he fielded so mm. close to the bat that he just wanted everything to go right. But he was already in London. Because he was expecting he was going to play two days later. He'd already made the journey from Oxford. He was staying with a chap called Errol Holmes, a mate of his. And they yeah, said... I've heard of him. Well, they said, well, because, Mandy, you can't play. Errol, can you play at Lord's? So oh, my Errol, God, so no. Errol, like, Errol like, plays... Like getting your mate. <laughs> I mean, I think, he, I think he was... I guess he was next in the queue anyway. But Errol gets to play the test match at Lord's. And because they were rooming together, he's crashing at his joint. Mandy said, look... I'm not going to play for England, but Oxford are playing against Surrey at the Oval at the same time. Look, the hay fever's bad, but it's not bad enough to miss a game at the Oval for Oxford. I'm willing to play that one. So, on the way to Lords, Errol drops Mandy off at the Oval in his car. Oh, my God. And Mandy, predictably, rattles off 132 against Surrey when the test match <laughs> is going on on the other side of the river, which he's ruled himself out of because he doesn't want to sneeze when Headley Verity's bowling. <laughs> Oh, this is a that is a corker. So, so he, 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 he gets taken to Australia, but never gets another opportunity to play Test cricket. And after Oxford, he goes into the Sudanese civil service. I mean, this guy was a serious, serious dude. So he barely got a chance to play for Somerset before the war. However, in 1937, you know how I mentioned before that he grew up a little bit in Scotland. Well, his dad yep. was Scottish and he was eligible to play for Scotland. He played one game for them when New Zealand were in town, made 87 against the Turing New Zealanders, and that was it for the summer for him. Just the one game, 87 for Scotland. When we've seen players represent Scotland before, I mean, Clive Rice played for Scotland, Mark Wars mm. played for Scotland, others have done so, I guess, in a ceremonial way, but he was eligible to play for them properly because of um, his lineage and, and where he grew up. But yeah, he didn't play loads of cricket before the war for Somerset. He was busy in in the public service in Sudan. In uh, in some places, it was described as the the political service. I'm not sure what he was doing precisely, but it was clearly work that kept him away from the country most of the time. And when he was on leave, he'd go back to Somerset where his family were. Then in 1948, after the war, you know how I said to you at the start of story time, I'd return to. I might have said it yes. on the weekly show, a, a, an amateur who became captain. Somerset said to this veteran, they said to Mandy, would you do us a solid? Would you mind being captain for us as an amateur? So he goes, okay, no worries, but I can only play in April and May. I've got to fuck off back to my day job. So he captained them for two months to start the season as an amateur in 1948 just because they asked him to do them a favour after the war. Can I just point out at this stage that people are worried about whether county cricket is breeding good enough players to, to beat Australia. Is it any bloody wonder they lost against the Invincibles? Two years earlier, the, the, the biggest or second biggest county was captured by a bloke who'd gone in there to get his membership, Major Nigel Harvey Bennett, mistaken for another Major Bennett. 
Two years later, Somerset has been captained for two months by, by just, a bloke. Just a guy, just, who, just was, to fill just in. A guy who was at just home. <laughs> just a guy who was at home for a bit, who played one test match 13 years earlier and had seldom played cricket between times and certainly hadn't played through the war. I um, was born 50 years too late, man. Absolutely, absolutely. Such was his perceived talent. Because remember, going back to the very start of the story, he's a freak, right? He had, he had gifts. So by this yeah. stage of his career, he'd stopped netting. He would just walk out to bat. He didn't really train. He would just go out to bat. It didn't go particularly well. They didn't win many matches in those two months, and so it was. He did move back to England uh, and ended up working as an executive for a brewery in Sunderland, so back to the northeast where he was educated. Um, and according to David Foote, and I should say, by the way, a lot of what I've told you then is pieced together from a couple of obits that David Foote wrote when he passed away. But according to Foote, uh, Mandy remained very chilled about his life decisions and very happy with his lot in life in cricket, especially fond of his days that he spent dominating at the parks for Oxford, which, you know, I know it wasn't the top level. He could have played more test cricket, but he had such a prolific record there oh. that he was happy with how it all played out. Then when Alf Glover died in October 2001, our man, Mandy Mitchell Innes, became England's oldest living test cricketer. And so he remained until he passed away, age 92, on the 28th of December 2006, which just happens to be the day that I was referring to before when Shane Warne bowled that flipper to Sajid Mahmood when England got resold in three days uh, by Australia in, in that Boxing Day test match, the Shane Warne farewell that I was writing about in Wisdom Cricket Monthly. And oh. that was the day that, that Mandy passed away at age 92 after what, it seems as though it was a most fascinating life, which included a couple of bizarre weeks in 1935 when he was ever so briefly a test cricketer, then struck down with hay fever, and that was that. That is the, one of the most delicious stories I think I've ever heard. Mandy Mitchell in this. Maybe that's... What's, what is that song? Oh, Mandy, you came and you whatever. You came and you gave me a, some candy from, uh, from my vacation away from work. Hey, Mandy. Yeah, anyway, Mandy. Anyway. <laughs> That's, I'm gonna, I'm it's gonna bad that I can't get the, there's, a, there's a Simpsons reference there, isn't it? It's um, mm. uh, a man called Mandy. Or, uh, I, can't, I wish I remembered. If this were 10 years ago and my, and my Simpsons, someone on the Discord channel will, will find the appropriate clip with um, Homer and Mandy when he doesn't cheat on Marge. That's 283 for Claire, Danny, Daniel. This falls into the category of if I'm wrong, lie to me. Tell me I'm right because uh, that <laughs> deserves to be your number. Last but certainly not least, uh, Daniel, today is James Blundell. 269, let it rip. 269, 269. I, I, I went down a few routes here. Uh, so I'm going to give you some, some brief perambulations around okay. the top. 26th of September. And I remember very much where I was on the 26th of September because it's the day that Ben Stokes was arrested outside a nightclub in Bristol. Yes. The cheesy chips. Yeah. At the Jason Donovan, where Vish and I had had cheesy chips sitting on the same curb uh, no more than four weeks earlier when we'd also been at Embargo Nightclub and also experienced the sawdust on the dance floor. Remember it well. I think what I, a year I commentated that, that game the The, the, the Moeen 100? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think that was it, wasn't it? I mean, they, yep. they, they tend to merge, but the... Yep, it was it was quite the red letter day. The next day, there was a lot of oh knowing, oh no, and there's an ashes coming up. Oh no, for all sorts of reasons. Oh no, twenty sixth of September, incidentally, is also the birthday of Ian Chapel and Johnny Bairstow and Bob Barber. Bob Barber, okay. big hitting opener for a while. Um, 
hugely respected by Jeffrey Boycott. He had a lot of time for Bob Barber. I thought about going down that route. It's also the birthday, though, of a man I'm going to... This isn't my answer, but I'm just going to take you through a guy that I'd never come across before. And I don't know why I hadn't, because he's relatively recent. He's born in 1971 on the 26th of September, 269, if you like. And his name, I'd be interested to know if you remember him, is Patterson Ian Chesterfield Thompson. I know quite a bit about Patterson Thompson. <laughs> Do you? It won't surprise you? you to know that uh, I've told this story before on Storytime, but we've, we're this deep into the show that I'm sure that um, our listeners will indulge us and I'll tell it one more time. Uh, I was on a flight from uh, my first test match that I covered was in Dominica. I was at the tour game in Antigua uh, and um, and uh, we were flying uh, yeah from the tour game to the test match and, and Patterson Thompson was the pilot on that plane. He'd gone into oh, being he's a commercial like a, pilot. He's, he's a bit like he's a bit like Colin Croft, is he? Yes. Well, he'd become a commercial pilot after his career finished. And what Patterson right. Thompson's most well known for is he played two test matches, one at Adelaide in 96, that series I was referring to before, 96-97, the, the Michael Bevan test. And he also played one, I think I'm right in saying, in New Zealand. And in, That's and, he, correct. And, in, and in both of them, he bowled a fuckload of front foot no balls. I'm talking like 20, 22. Numbers, 22 no balls. And, 22 in and, his and, first test. And Craig McDermott was the bowling coach of the Aussie team at the time. And he had played in that test match in 96 at Adelaide Oval. And when it became, because we're all together, as you are in situations like that pre-COVID when journos and, and players mixed together. And when it became known to the crew that, a former West Indian fast bowler was was flying the plane, and it was Patterson Thompson. Craig McDermott's response was, "Fuck, he better not overstep today." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, referring to the you, landing, you I think specifically when he was landing the plane, he was saying that. But I thought it was quite a good gag there from Billy. Well, it's 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 great memory from you. I was going to do a little digression on him, but you've you've said it all. That's it. That's Patterson Thompson. <laughs> 22 no balls on debut. That is something else, isn't it? I mean, he's actually got a strike rate of 46, which isn't bad, but unfortunately he went at six and over right. across his very right. brief career. Yes. Then I looked. I look, obviously, at cap number 269, and, and a name leapt out at me. Okay. This is also, incidentally, not my answer. Charlie Barnett. Now then, you might dimly remember Charlie Barnett because... Charlie Barnett got closer than any England batter has ever done to scoring 100 on the first morning of a test match. Oh, okay. It's been done a few times. Charlie McCartney, Victor Trumper, David Warner. But not by an Englishman. Not by an Englishman, okay. No, he got tantalisingly, he was 98 not out at lunch on day one, Mm -hmm. opening the batting with Len Hutton against Australia in 1938 at Nottingham. They put on 219 for the first wicket. England scored 658 for eight declared. But, of course, being in England, they weren't timeless tests. It did feature that test match, a very famous double hundred by the great Stan McCabe, 232. Uh, and they've, yes. gone back, they've gone back in history and they've now got the scorecards. He did that, Hark you, in 1938. Look, it's not Ted Allitson, but it's not far off. 277 balls, 34 fours and a six. Stan McCabe. Isn't that the innings that Bradman says is the best innings he ever saw? I think I'm right in saying. Is that or is 187, was it? No, no, Bradman declared. No, it's the Trent Bridge double hundred that Bradman declares is the best innings he saw. They had to follow on Australia, but they ended on 427 for six, an inevitable hundred from Don Bradman. And uh, I have to say, Stan McCabe is one of the three players, if I had a time machine, I would go back to see Trumper, McCabe, 
and Gilbert Jessup. They're the three I've, yeah. I've always wanted to find out what they were like. Yeah, and Stan McCabe was the player they chose from that era to be, well, when you were having your cigarette uh, at the SCG in, in 2017, just out there next to the members, there's the, the sculpture of McCabe, which I wrote about in a long Cricket Monthly piece about all the sculptures around Australian cricket venues. And that one was made with a lot of love by Rodney Cavalier, who was the, the boss of the SCG Trust at the time, former Member of Parliament. He went and got Steve Waugh to help him. I think they went down to the Barrel Bradman Museum to try on the pads that McCabe would have been wearing in the 187 to yeah. make sure the pose was authentic. The hook shot that he's playing, because it's an incredibly striking sculpture because he's playing a hook shot and, you know, it looks like he's in danger. His face gives that impression. But, like, they went to so much effort. It wasn't just a case of, like, let's pick an iconic photograph. It's like, let's try and capture the danger in what McCabe was doing and let's use Steve Waugh to help with the process and let's use Don Bradman's pads to give a feel for what it would have felt like to wear that kind of kit in that kind of time with limited protection equipment. Fantastic. Yeah, that's I like that. The Barrel Museum is a thing of wonder, I have to say. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah. Isn't it beautiful? So that's Charlie Barnett. It's not. I, I, he's not going to be my answer, though. Okay. Uh, the Australian cap number, if you're interested, is Alan Hurst, who I remember quite fondly because he played in that 78-79 series and mm. opened the bowling with Rodney Hogg. And it was one of the first times we in England got to see what Australia looked like because we got, we got some highlights and stuff. So I'm kind of fond of that whole team, Peter Toohey, Graham Yallop, the whole lot. But I'm not going to go with him either. I'm going to go with a famous 269. Okay. And it's scored by a man who, in the process of scoring this 269, helped to compile the largest fourth-wicket partnership in the history of Test cricket. Ah, you you foreshadowed this spoiler at the start of the show. I did, rather. 449 Mm. Adam Voges and Sean Marsh, who we've mentioned already. They put on against the West Indies in Hobart. There's been a lot of chat about Hobart lately. And he scored 269 not out in that game. And it's a game that is obviously like more familiar to you guys than it is to me because I've, I've heard you getting very excited about it. What were the circumstances? I mean, 449 is one hell of a... It's one yeah. hell of a... T- well, my, my enduring memory of that partnership is how relieved Jim Maxwell was when it was when it was broken on four four nine that it didn't break Ponsford and Bradman's four five one that we touched on at the very start of the show. Thank uh, you, yeah. love it when we um come back to where we started. Yeah, and Jim was relieved. He's like a partnership as great as that needn't be overtaken against a third rate West Indian attack when they were really as bad as they've ever been. That West Indies side were just nowhere near it. It was the first test. It was in Hobart. Poor old Jason Holder was on the tools as captain for the first time, I'm pretty sure, and they just had no chance in sporting conditions, uh, and and it turned out to be a, a walkover. Australia made them follow on, and Craig Brathwaite made a 100 that was in Bannerman, areas for a while there when following on but James Pattinson just blasted them out in the first innings and and so it goes but yeah it was a do as you please for Marsh and for Voges who who was on that incredible streak he averaged 532 in test cricket against the West Indies I think I'm right in saying he was dismissed once against them that was in his second test in Jamaica but yeah made a hundred there made a hundred at the MCG he made a 
yeah, the 100 at Hobart and the 100 at Dominica when it all started for him. So, yeah, he had, so 269 was the score. At, the, at that particular moment in time, we were pissed off that Australia had declared. We were like, the way Voges is batting, you've just robbed him of a triple. I mean, yeah, yeah, the partnership's broken, but you only really need to give him half an hour more. They got the test match dealt with in, I think they won by T on the third day. It was so quick. So he really was robbed of that chance to move to, to a triple ton. That's correct. Um, but that he, is but absolutely he, but correct. He did, but he did celebrate the, the performance by having 269 beers that night, if I recall correctly. So <laughs> it was a great hit out. We It might have even been earlier. I think we got out of the, out of the ground at like... Yeah, it was. We were finished work by about two in the afternoon, and it was a night for the ages around Salamanca there in Hobart. So, yeah, good memories of that got, week, I, even if it was a shit test match. I'm going to fill you in a couple of details there because you're right that that West Indies side, it, its bowling attack felt weak, and it would have felt weak to you guys watching at the time. But it's actually comprised of a bowling attack that, by now, if you look at their actual figures now and what they've gone on to achieve. Jerome Taylor, yeah, maybe. Yep. Kim R. Roach, Shannon yep. Gabriel, Jason Holder. Yeah, fair enough. There's and, some and also, decent bowlers um, in there. And also uh, Jam- Jamel Warrakane, the man the authorities came to blame. He was in there as well as the main spinner. Got yep, 358. He took took three of the four wickets. Australia compiled that 583 in 114 overs. So that they got there by, like, lunch yeah. on day two, which is probably why you were even more irritated that they didn't go on. Because when's a guy going to get a chance to get 300 if you declare him a 269 at lunch on day two? Oh. I mean, that is lunacy. The partnership, as we say, 449, absolutely magnificent. And you mentioned there, because I was going to come on to this, but you, you said Craig Brathwaite was in Bannerman areas. He was seriously threatening a Bannerman. He had 94 out of 148, and he was the last man out. Because Shannon Gabriel was was injured, he couldn't come out to bat. And at the other end was Jamel Warrican. But, and this is a thing that's slightly irritating, <laughs> Jamel Warrican faced two balls. It was six not out after two balls. Had he not got those six runs in two balls, what he was thinking of, I have no idea. Why is he going? Why is he doing this when Craig Brathwaite's at the other end? Why did he do his, that? Why did he do that? Why did he do that? The way the way Craig Brathwaite was batting, and this is why you're probably really getting Bannerman excited. That tenth, well, ninth wicket partnership, but last wicket partnership because Gabriel was injured, put on thirty-one runs in ten balls, right? before Brathwaite was out, of which Brathwaite got 23 of them. And you'd have been thinking, two more overs of this. Well, actually, one more over of this. Yeah, And he would have gone into Bannerman territory because 94 out of 148 is around about 63, 64%. This is how it's going to happen. Jeff and I have went through this in the past or gone through this in the past that when this is eventually broken, it's going to be when a team spifflicated and one player... Mm. Holds up most of the Bannermans. A bit like, in, a bit like Stokes at Headingley. A bit like Stokes at Headingley with, yeah. with Leach at well, the other well, end. Well, the, kind the, of thing, the Glen, the Glen the, Turner, the Glen Turner, eighty-one percent or whatever it is. You know, no one else makes it to double figures, and he makes one hundred and forty-one. Mm. It's going to be like that. It's not going to be, I don't think, anyway, where a player gets a double hundred and they're all out for three hundred. Like I, my sense is that it's more likely to be when a team is following on when it because Lakshman in in. Um, in 2000 at the SCG, also gets into the 60s, I'm pretty sure. He gets to about 61% where he gets 150-odd. 
where the rest of the team are one foot on the plane. So, yeah, yep. when this eventually goes, it might be a bit of an anticlimax because, yeah, that was a shit-ass test match. And if Brathwaite had broken the Bannerman there, I mean, it will go. Or maybe it won't. Maybe the first well, ball... Maybe it won't. Maybe it won't. And maybe it'll remain, as Dan Liebke says, this, the greatest piece of cricket statistical nerdery there ever was. The first ball faced, the first innings completed, the first moment of test cricket constitutes something that's never been surpassed which is just so remarkable on so many levels i don't know i would hope so but anyway i submit i submit to the committee 269 adam voges my work is done for the day it is it's been uh, it's been sturdy work from you we've been going for the better part of two hours which would suggest we've had some fun along the way i hope you have if you've listened to it if you enjoy what we do on the final word you can get involved with us on the patron page by going to patron.com forward slash the final word send through your pledge we would love to see it there is a, a bit of a queue but there always kind of is and what you do whilst waiting in the queue is you play along on discord with our wonderful community of final word I was going to call them final word activists. That'd be that'd be that'd be stretching the friendship. Final word supporters who talk amongst themselves mostly because, well, when we were in Pakistan, we were under the pump working sort of sixteen hours a day. And in the last couple of weeks, I've been well trying to rest, but now working with you doing this. These conversations continue apace, as it was when I used to hang out on the Victor Trumpet cricket board all those years ago and read about these stories that were now coming around and, and telling on this podcast so it's a nice thing so patreon.com forward slash the final word it is what has made it possible for us to make two editions of this show and sometimes many more over the last few years uh, thank you daniel for being a brilliant stand-in host over the last oh. couple of weeks initially for me and then for jeff uh, it is always wonderful to have uh, you as as part of our hosting bench and i'm sure you'll be doing it again soon well it's always a pleasure as you know it stimulates the mind and uh I, I then tend to slip many of these facts into IPL commentary to an audience that has no idea why I'm doing it. Well, this is it, isn't it? The, the, the number of times in our other jobs that we can use the stories we learn through this and come full circle. It's all worth it. All right. Have a nice weekend, everybody. This has been the Final Word Storytime with Adam Collins and Daniel Norcross. We'll do it again soon. Bye. Bye-bye. I had to go.